You are listening to Normalized Crime, an in-depth look at gang life and all the effects that come along with it. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Normalized Crime. I'm Eric. Berto here. And Berto, what do you got for a subject for us today? Actually, before before we go into the subject, uh, would you like to tell the audience about the exciting news that happened to you the past week? See if he remembers um, what the news is. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think for a lot of people, it's a it's a milestone. Um, so it's it's definitely noteworthy. Being that the first my first run in real run in with the law happened about, you know, when I was about 13 years old, being on supervised supervision through the bulk of my life. If I was free, uh, I think it's it's uh, it's worth noting that on Tuesday I was finally removed from all supervision no more, no more probation officer, no more uh, urine samples in the cup, you know, unless it's for a job. Interview. <laughs> um, but it's definitely a surreal feeling, man. For me, it was uh, it was it was a uh, it was a milestone moment, man, because I mean, you it, it becomes so normal. Like, I mean, I'm sure guys can relate guys that, you know, I know guys that have been in and out of prison their whole life and, and guys that get out of prison. It just it's something that is a part of your life, a probation officer or you know, I got a report or I got to do this program or, you know what I mean? It just becomes so, so normal that people kind of overlook it. And then, you know, you get into a situation where you're really a part of productive member of society and you're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing. And then you realize, you know, that that becomes a burden, you know, a different kind of burden, you know, not the kind of burden that they're trying to chase you down and lock you up, but you got to take time out of your day and find time out of your day to, to go do it when you're working and so yeah, man. Long story short, it just—it's a great feeling, man, to be in a situation now where I'm completely free and can move forward with my life. And I'm going to come back to the military reference on this because I just think it's funny that how much prison in in the military correlate with each other. Because I can remember once I got out of the Navy, when you go into the Navy, you do your your regular enlistment, and then you have another four years after that where they could be just call you up at any time. And I can still remember the day when I hit that four-year date where it was like, okay, there's no chance of this ever happening now. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a different ball game, man. When you're trying to be, you know, a man in society and live up to uh, not just the standard you set for yourself after doing prison time, but the standard that society sets for you, and then on top of that, you got to answer to somebody still. You know, it's like yeah. it's like an ego check. And it kind of, you know, it humbles you at times if you try to put the, the cart before the horse, so to speak, you know, but for the most part, it becomes, you know, just the inconvenience, man. And not that, you know, I had a decent probation officer. She was super cool. She wasn't always on my tail. But just the fact that even if I had to go somewhere, or, you know, go back to Milwaukee or when I was driving for my job, you know, I got to, hey, I'm leaving the state or, you know, I got stopped by a you know, a cop, a check for my truck or just anything. Anytime your name goes into a system and yeah, it pops yeah. up, it alerts them. So yeah, it's just a hassle, man. And, and, and on top of that, the, uh, what it signifies is the big thing for me. You know, it just signifies that I serve my debt to society, man. And, and I can be a free man and, and, uh, and I deserve where I'm at. And finally close that chapter of your life and move. Well, I mean, yeah. you have been moving forward, but you can, move forward fully free and clear of everything. So, well, congratulations yeah. on that. So, I mean, no, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you even bringing it up, man. <laughs> to some people it's, you know, it's a blip on the radar, but to me, man, it's, it's, uh, 
definitely a big part of my life that I'm moving past. All right. So you want to just jump in? What do you got for a topic for us today? Uh, okay. So today I wanted to talk about, um, you know, it's a controversial subject because, you know, people are either, it seems like they're either ride or die on one side or the other. And that's, that's cooperation with the government. There's a lot of misconceptions about cooperation and, and there's a lot of truth about the cooperations that happen. And I think it's, it's kind of good to maybe not clarify everything because I'm not a legal scholar or I'm not somebody who has all the right answers, but just give you my point of view of kind of how it works, how the cooperation works, you know, and just share my viewpoint on maybe why I think, you know, cause you talk to a lot of times when you're in these situations, you talk to a lot of people who are going through something similar to you. A lot of times those guys cooperate, but I'll get into that in, in, in a few minutes, but yeah, so I think I'll go over that. And then also just, you know, some prison, you know, kind of how prison is in, in the kind of prison that I was at, you know, basically, you know, just give you a rundown of your day to days and just kind of how things differ and, and give you some contrast. Cool. All right. Well, um, kick it off. I'm, I, I don't know that I have a preconceived notion of, I mean, when you say preconceived notion of cooperation do you just think that there's people that are half on the side of you should never cooperate with the government and then there's people on the other side that are just stolly like oh that's a, the right move yeah, to make yeah and i, I yeah i think I, I think we touched on it a little bit man how um in the beginning just about the hypocrisy and talking about how you know sometimes it's okay for certain people to cooperate and it's not okay for other people to cooperate you know not that it's okay but people kind of look past it or they have some understanding for it you know, and I'm not just talking about Latin Kings being in my gang or being in this gang or being in that gang. I'm talking about the street life in general, because there's people who have never been a part of any organized crime or anything like that, that just grew up on the South that where I'm from, man. And they just, they live by street rules. You know, they, they, you know, they don't talk to cops, you know, and it's not that they're, you know, breaking the law or anything like that. It's just, that's just how they are. It's how they mm -hmm. were raised. So and I'm talking about families and families, you know, in neighborhoods and neighborhoods, you know, maybe the generation changed a little bit now, but I know when I was growing up, like if something happened, people just closed the doors, man, minding their business, you know? So, that, you know, I say that because cooperation came in later on, you know, in my case, I wasn't the first to cooperate and, I, and I'm not going to be the last. And uh, so when I say preconceived notion too, I also, I also think about the idea of what cooperation is, right? Like some people, they just think, oh, this dude cooperate, he's a snitch. And as soon as he, you know, got arrested in the back of the police car, he was telling everything he knew, anything to save his, save his own, save his own neck. So there are situations like that. Right. And, um, obviously I've known people that are like that, but when it comes to the FBI, when it comes to the feds, man, these things are calculated, you know, these decisions aren't like snap of the finger decisions. A lot of guys that get indicted, man, on a federal level, they're usually there for serious crimes, whether it be drugs. Rico, they're usually on a serious crime, even when it comes to white collar, it's like, you know, above it's millions of dollars, you know? So when people make a decision to cooperate, there's, there's a lot of formalities that go along with it. And there's research that you have to do based on your case and, and what do you think is best for you? And, and a bunch of things come into play. And I gave an example to you, man, I can gave my example, you know, when it came to my cooperation, I didn't cooperate by myself. You know, my, my decision to cooperate wasn't a sole decision. It was a group decision. You know, I think as people understand my story and know my story, they'll start to see that I had a, a tight group, a tight core when it came down to it. And the core of my group was, unfortunately, it was the violent part of the, the gang. 
And, and so we all had the serious charges. Obviously, we didn't start the indictment. The indictment had to be started on us, which means people had to cooperate in order to make an indictment. You have to go to a grand jury and, you know, with each individual charge. And, 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 and you know, I kind of I, I briefly showed you the indictment and, and, you know, 78 pages later, that takes time to build up. So, you know, there's cooperators, there's people that know about your case and all these things come into play. And I think when it came to me and the guys that I was with and when we decided to cooperate, we understood that our back was against the wall, but not just against the wall. It was that we were the focal point. We were the focal point of the indictment. At the end of the day, if we were going to be these stand-up kings, we were going to be the only ones that would be buried in back of the prison. You know, everybody would get out someday. You know, even the, you know, there's there was a there was a, a regional Inca on our indictment. I think it got like five years. You know, I'm a foot soldier at the time. You know, yeah, I had rank. I came up in certain aspects. But compared to what the indictment represented, you know, having the regional Inca, the regional Kasinka, having guys that founded the chapter, you know, I'm small potatoes in my mind, mm -hmm. not knowing that I really wasn't. Cornerstone of our indictment, so to speak, was the violence. And so all these things, you know, obviously you have to think about, you have to weigh when you're making a decision. And then, and in my case, I had to do it when I was 18. You know, how I'm not even fully developed as a man. I've, I've already been, you know, locked up for, you know, 18 months, two years total. And, and so, do I really know how to make this make this kind of decision? Um, ultimately, when we did, you know, like I said, there's a there's a a process that you go through. Once we did, I, I believe, uh, you know, I'm not going to be specific on who went in and all that, but we all went in. Basically, what happens? You have to sign a proffer letter. So this is a this is a gift and a curse, right? And this is what all these uh, federal inmates deal with that cooperate. All right. Now, first of all, let me preface this statement by saying this: it's a joke. But from what I've seen, it's true, right? They say there's three people, three kinds of people in federal prison. The ones that told, the ones that wish they told, and the ones that wish they had somebody to tell on. Those are the three <laughs> kinds of people that are in federal prison. And the reason why they say that is because the guys that didn't tell on nobody, they're never going home mm -hmm. in the feds. Nine times out of 10, they're never going home. Yeah, you got some short timers who maybe they weren't involved in something big and they're going home and they didn't cooperate. You know, golf clap for you if I'm from the street. But- <laughs> The majority of people, man, the reality is that 91% of federal inmates take pleas, right? The feds got a 99% conviction rate, 99%. You go to trial, I mean, you got 0.1% chance to win. Wow. All right. And then, you know, within the 91%, they say 91 to 94% cooperate in some form or fashion. Now, let me back up and I'll tell you, the proffer letter is basically, it's an agreement to admit all your criminal activity, right? Okay. Now, I say this is a this is a gift and a curse because the reason why it's a gift is for to be honest with you guys like me who was involved in so much dirt, so much racketeering, so much shooting and all the the nonsense and violence. It helped me because I have tons of cases that I wasn't charged with, cases they didn't know about. Not murders, but you know, gang activity. Stuff know? they could have definitely so, used against you basically. They could, yeah, they could have kept throwing it at me. Right. And and so you get to confess that under proffer, and then as a part of the agreement, they don't prosecute you on those charges. Okay, so that's that's the give that's the give when it comes to the proffer. Now the take is that you have to be completely honest about everything you did, everything you were involved in, and if they find out you're lying, they can tear the proffer up and prosecute you. You know, so that's why I say, man, it's 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 a really really touchy thing because guys that take pleas. Right. If you're going to take a plea on a drug charge, 
And this happens a lot, man. You got to remember, I did time. I was I was in the county jail for four and a half years. So I did time with a lot of people that were in and out, in and out, federal indictments. You know, four and a half years, there was 49 people on our indictment, right? So, you know, waiting, waiting, waiting. Our our, our uh, motions and hearings would be six months, nine months apart. But anyways, um, I'd be with guys, man, who they'd have drug charges, right? And here's the here's the caveat. They say, okay, take a plea for let's just give an example, a hundred kilograms of cocaine, right? Mm -hmm. So if you say, yeah, I'm gonna take a plea and you go in there and you don't sign a proffer agreement, then you take the plea for a hundred kilograms. And then Joe Blow comes and says, Hey man, I got, a, I got, I got 50 kilos from him too. One time, you know, because he got caught doing something. Let's say he got caught up something. He wants to cooperate. You didn't cooperate. You're just taking a plea. And he says, yeah, man, I got 50 kilos from him one time. Guess what? Even though you took a plea for that hundred, now they can no, indict you for the 50. 50. <laughs> now, right. Exactly. Now, now I'm saying now, if he would have went in, this guy, hypothetically, this guy goes in and signs a proffer and says, yeah, I did get the hundred that we're taking a plea. You know, I did sell the hundred that I'm taking a plea for, but I also sold 50 on the side over here. I also did this over here. Now he's cleaning his hands up, you know, because mm -hmm. no matter who comes in, the feds are going to say, oh, I knew about that already because he cooperated. Now, even if he cooperated on himself, he cooperated. You see? So that's what I'm saying. There's a fine line because then when you go to the feds, now you can't have none of that in order to walk a real compound, in order to be in the United States penitentiary. You can't have dirty paperwork. You just can't. You know, I say you can't because they, they play with knives in there. Man. You know, it's a different ball game. You know, mediums too. Mediums, they, they also have that treatment. You know, lows, not so much because everybody wants to go home. But, you know, there's fights and things like that for cooperation. But so many guys slip through the cracks. There's guys, man, that literally do their time from hole to hole in prisons because they're, they're cooperators. They cooperate at some point. So they can't walk this compound. They can't walk that compound. And they have to move from prison to prison to prison until they find somewhere that's safe. These are the things that, that people think about, you know what I'm saying? When they're really, it's not just a snap of the finger decision, man. The whole federal system and the way it's designed, the way it's set up, you know, it's there. It's, you have to be methodical about your approach, you know, now. Now, going back to myself, obviously, I, I don't know if I, I could say fortunately, yes, because I didn't have to go and worry about that. I didn't have to go to a compound and worry about getting stabbed or, you know, worry about fighting every day for my life. You know what I'm saying? Which rightfully so, because I chose the wrong side, you know what I'm saying? In their eyes, you know, so I would have understood that's what comes along with the decision. But luckily, I didn't have to go to, that. you know, I ended up because of my cooperation, I ended up being able to go to what's a WITSEC unit. And in the WITSEC unit, it's basically an isolated part of the prison. Um, it's a separate unit. You know, most times they're connected to prisons where the prisoners know that that's a WITSEC unit, you know, but they can't get to it. They can't, you know, there's no way because it's isolated, it's separate. And and that's where I did all my time um, in a couple of different units. And um, in those different units, obviously different rules. There's only a few of them. There's only like six units you can go to. So it's not a lot to choose from. You know, so that's, that's kind of... That's the uh, the ultimate result for cooperation, right? Like I got I got put in a situation because obviously I was part of nationally organized crime. Latin kings are known everywhere, you know. But the average guy who is selling drugs and he tells on another drug dealer, that guy's not going to Woodset. You know, that guy's going to a regular compound with dirty paperwork. Yeah, and that was one of the things I was going to ask. So this isn't everybody that cooperates doesn't end up in a unit like this. It's only if they right. deem it as your very select few people yeah right? like you're at such a risk that we just you cannot be among any normal right criminals exactly so as i said there's a lot of people that end up in prison 
in these compounds and and uh, fight for your life every day. And that's why I say, man, sometimes it's not who you tell on, it's it's you know, or what you tell on, it's who you tell on. You know what I'm saying? Because you know, some of these guys too, they tell on murders, but but if it's like you know a murder that, regardless of what it is, if you're not connected to like a major organized crime group, you're not getting into those units, man. Mm-hmm. Like you're not. You know, like a lot of the like a lot of the when I was there. A lot of like the MS-13 started coming through, you know, because they're pretty well known everywhere and then they're stu- extremely violent. So a lot of those guys are coming through. But when I first got there, there was a lot of like mobsters, you know, a lot of like old Italian mobsters, you know, guys I know Gavin probably did research <laughs> on, uh, you know, for sure. So I like I said, I was I, I mentioned Sammy. I was with Sammy the Bull. Cool guy. Nothing wrong with him. You know, he's 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 I think he'll even admit to this that he. You know, he kind of has an entitled persona, you know, and, and he carries himself like that. But not a bad guy. Um, another Italian mobster I ran to was this guy named Ralph Natale. And um, he was the head of the he was the first one of the first heads of a mob to cooperate. He was he was the head of the Philly mob um, right after Angelo Bruno. So, you know, there were, I met a lot of guys, man, just a lot of like, you know, I mentioned Carlos later. You know, I mentioned a bunch of guys and, and um, you know. Were these people? Were these names? Were these names that you knew going in? For instance, Sammy the Bull. When you were when you first met him, that that one's that one's obvious. Yeah, that one's obvious. You know that one, right? But like Ralph Natale, I wouldn't have known that. Yeah, then that's what I'm curious. And I I remember in the four part podcast series, you were talking about um, the son of like a drug cartel leader or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I didn't know him, right? So, so his name was Seraphine. Super cool kid, man. Like super cool kid. You know, real humble. But you know, I mean, let's just let's just be fair here. The dude grew up in a family that's worth a billion dollars. Yeah. Dad <laughs> is, um, yeah. His dad is is El Mayo, which is which is uh, Zambada. Vicente. Uh, he was, yeah, Vicente Zambada, which he's the number two, or some say the number one of the Sinaloa cartel. And so his his oldest son is Vicente, and Vicente was in the units too, but I was never with him. Um, but he was in one of the units too, but he, this guy, this, you want to talk about lucking out. This guy had like, man, listen, man. I mean, I can't imagine how many guys, this families, this guy probably ordered killed and, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. This dude was worth hundreds of millions. Of, he got 15 years. I think he'd be, I think he's out. I think he just got out because he, he cooperated, but, but yeah, I was with the youngest one and, and Seraphine was like super cool, man. Didn't never have to sell drugs. You know, his family's worth crazy amount of money. But, um, you know, unfortunately he did. He was my, he, he worked out in my workout car with me, man. He was super funny, like, you know, broken English, but, you know, intelligent. He understood. Yeah. It was, it, you, you, you get, you get, you get to experience things like that, man. You probably never really would have, man, because I did, I did run into a lot of like, you know, higher profile guys, guys that were a part of, you know, some of the Aryan brotherhoods, like some of the, the most dangerous Aryan brotherhoods that ended up cooperating and ended up in one of those units. Yeah, so guys like that, I, I actually ran into, I didn't mention them, good friend of mine. There's actually a set of twins that cooperated on on, um, on El Chapo. And these guys were from Chicago. Super good, super humble guy. I met one of the brothers, they're twins, look exactly alike, but I met I met one of them and uh, just had a good relationship with them. But if you look them guys up, the, 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 the Flores twin, and you know, those guys were doing crazy amounts of, making crazy amounts of money with, with the Sinaloa cartel. And so, you know, there, you, you, 
you run into a lot of situations where your mind's kind of blown too, you know, regardless of what kind of lifestyle you're living, there's different people that do different things. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I did that. And, and as far as like day-to-day -day operations in prison, man, like, you know, for the most part, um, prison is like, yeah, I mean, what pe people have this, this vision in their mind, like when they get, you know, when they think about people in prison, it's like bars and cell blocks and, you know, and, you know, they're throwing your food <laughs> on the floor and like, it's, it's, it's not that. You know, it's not that it's, it's, uh, you know, it becomes your home, man. Like, yeah. Like you, you have pride in your cell, like people clean your cell, you have a desk. There's a lot of like really, really, um, like OCD people in prison. Like they want their room, like super clean, you know, it's, it's crazy. You run into a lot of that, but, but prison isn't like, isn't what, like what people envision, you know, and everybody gets into a routine, you know, people, some people get up and work out, you know, some people go programming. You know, some people, you know, they, they're bums all day, like they would be in the street, you know, so it, it just depends, man. And then there's drinking in prison, there's smoking in prison, you know, all the things you shouldn't be doing. There's, you know, they got it going on. Obviously it's easier in a regular compound than it is in like the units I was in because they're so tight knit. Um, but it happens, you know, it happens and, and, uh, you know, it's just a part of what they call bidding. You know, when you bid, man, you, you're just trying to pass the time. One thing I would like to give some awareness to, though, man, to be honest with you, is, you know, I did a lot of time in those in those units. And the unfortunate thing about that, those units compared to regular compounds is they have really zero programming, man. like no, no really, um, you know, awareness programming or or anything to help you kind of transition yep. into society. And, and, you know, they don't have that. They 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 really neglect that area. And, and, you know, opposed to a regular compound where they have all the programming all the time, you go to school, whatever you want to do, they don't have that there, man. You're just kind of sitting there idle and, and it sucks. That is really a shame, actually. You know, and, it and is, man, a lot of that, yeah. And if you think about that, that you're, these people in this compound are the people that actually help the government take pe other bad people off the streets and stuff. I would think they would definitely have those services for those people at more so than they would for the other people. But right. It, that's right. just and the man, way it works. Huh? Know, a lot of the stuff that you do a lot. I mean, a lot of stuff that I did was all self-study, man. You know, like I, I started, when I started doing the electrical stuff, um, that was my first plan. Like I was literally buying books from a program, uh, that, you know, I had to purchase myself, get them sent in and study them. And so it's, it's really the only thing I did have one positive there. Um, for four years, um, I did train dogs, service dogs. So, you know, that teaches you a lot, man. You learn a lot of discipline. It's like raising a kid. I mean, you get mm -hmm. them when they're a puppy, man. And then, you know, I mean, we teach them everything. There's different kinds of service dogs, diabetic alert, hearing assist, mobility assist, autism dogs. Um, so you literally have to train different skills into these dogs. And I think that was a that was a benefit, you know, that was a plus, obviously not just for what the, what it was really doing for people, but also for your own peace of mind, man, it helps you. Uh, and I think that's, you got your own little person to hang out with. <laughs> yeah. And that's a really good, that's a really good little thing to throw in there because I don't think anybody would ever expect that people in prison are doing things like that. You know, like I've never heard of something like that training dogs. I mean, it's just a weird thing that, People yeah, are and doing, it's a, and it's a real cool organization too, man. Like, and it's a, it's a nonprofit organization that does it, and basically they they don't charge for the dogs; they donate the dogs to. I mean, obviously there's like a waiting list, but you know, diabetic, 
named off. All them people are on a waiting list for uh, uh, a service dog. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, obviously, they take donations and that's how they're able to stay afloat. But, you know, with that being said, they, they do a lot of good, man. And then, you know, it was cool. Like, every now and then we get to see, like, a graduation program of a dog we trained. You know what I mean? Like, they're walking across the stage. They'll bring the video and, uh, you know, and then you'll see who they get placed with and how they're helping them and all the things you taught them. So that's like a real heartwarming thing, man. Like to go through that process, you've seen him as a puppy and now he's a grown dog and now he's helping. And so that's a heartwarming thing. You know, that's cool. But, you know, and I appreciate it. I believe it did help me in some aspects of my own life. But like I said, man, for the majority of guys that might not like dogs or something like that, man, I think that there should be some sort of movement, man, just to just to help them guys. You know what I mean? And, and a lot of it has to remain anonymous unfortunately because of the situation that they're in and their identities and all the and all the things that go along with that but they're obviously still in contact with people you know they're obviously still you know working with the government so they should be able to have those programs man they should be able to really and and listen that's another thing too man is people assume that because guys cooperate they're getting out right away like that's not the i did i did 17 years i did 16 years you know 17 and a half almost 18 total in my life Right. So I didn't, I didn't tell and get out. My yeah. brother is doing, you know, my brother's got a 25 year sentence. You know, my, my, one of my guys, Benny, I mentioned him before. He's got 40 years. He's waiting. Holy you cow. Know? And then my other, and then my other friend, the one that is tighten it too, he's got life. He's got life right now. Now there's a chance he gets a time cut. Sure. But my point is that people just assume that, Oh, you tell and you get out. That's not the way it works. Hmm. You know, you have to, you have to, you have to hope that your situation gets better based on not only just what you know, but how you're used and all these things. And there's a lot of people in the units like that, man, that cooperated and then got screwed out of some deal because not every deal goes the way they want it to. Somebody might go in thinking that they have a lot of things to cooperate on and it might not be enough. It might not be nothing to the government. Maybe they knew the majority of it. And so these guys end up in these programs. And they're doing 20, 30, man, I had, I met, I met guys in there were in there for 40 years, man, 40 years in prison, you know? So it's the assumption isn't always what it, what it is, you know? And I think this is, I think we should swing back to the cooperation side of things a little bit here and talk about what was it like when, so when you sit down, do you, what is it? You say, okay, I'm willing to cooperate. Do they basically sit you down and say, okay, tell us everything you can provide us? And then based on what you tell them, they come back to you with an offer? Or how did they come to no. you? No, no. Once, you, once you make that decision, you know, that's the thing. That's, that's the cornerstone is that they can't make you any promises. You see, unless you go to them with like some crazy, you know, I can tell you where 10 bodies are buried and I have all the guns for them and I know exactly who did it. And I have all the details. You don't have no leverage with the government. So basically you're at their mercy. They're never giving you an idea what they're going to give you unless you have some sort of leverage. But when you're going in there and like in my case, I had a bunch of violence. I knew about a bunch of violence. Obviously, I was one of the main targets. I can't go in there to making demands, you know. So when my, my initial cooperation started, um, it was basically a situation where they were inquiring to talk to me. Um, they were telling my lawyer, hey, listen, bring him in. We want to talk to him. And, you know, initially we were going to trial. You know, like I said, we didn't cooperate for about 18 months. Uh, we were going to trial. We had an idea of what we wanted to do. We had the discovery. And then once we seen the discovery, who the cooperating witnesses were, it it obviously it, it destroyed our defense. 
one of the main defenses being that I never got caught with a gun. I never got pointed out by an eyewitness. I ne- none of this ever happened, right? But that's irrelevant because you got somebody who says they were standing right next to you when you did it, right? So that's the thing. You know, these are all the things I was thought, thinking about when I when I decided to cooperate. And then, yeah, when you go in, when you make the decision, your lawyer says, okay, yeah, well, let's go in. Your lawyer is really cognizant of what's going on. I had a fantastic lawyer who was like really, really protective of me. Um, I was blessed. I don't really know how that happened because I didn't have no money. He was appointed to me by the federal government. But, um, you know, when I had the conversation with him, he was just like, listen, you got to do what's best for you. He was like, he's like, they're going to throw enough stuff at the wall, man. He was like, and a lot of it's going to fall down, but some of it's going to stick. He said, so, you know, that's, that's what, that's where decision comes into play. And, um, even all the way up to signing a proper man, he read everything word for word for me, made sure I understood it, made sure what I was doing. And that's kind of how it is. You don't say nothing to them until your proffer is signed, everything's worked out, then you have an agreement and then, you know, your lawyer's right there. And, and that's when, you know, the first thing they usually say is, all right, let's talk about the murders, you know, because that's what they want. Uh, everything else becomes secondary. So you essentially had to make this decision not knowing anything. It was, it was basically the decision you had to make was whether you were going to cooperate or not, but you knew nothing more than that. That had to have been a hard decision to make. <laughs> It was tough. It was, tough. and like I said, it was tough for all of us because there was, you know, there was constant communication between uh, myself and and my brother and and Benny and two and there's, you know, that's our group. You know, that we were the four guys really that were, you know, we're family. You know, we're tight knit. Everything, you know, going back to when we were kids. So we're, you know, we had these sort of coded conversations the best we could. You know, through family members and. And like I mentioned, man, I was in the county jail. Me and my brother used to literally talk to a talk through a vent. You know, he was in the unit next to me. And and so these all these conversations, they eventually came down to a group decision, man, of hey man, this is probably what's gonna be best. We don't know the outcome, but we know the outcome of the other route. You know, that that was the that was the deciding factor for us as a whole. Yeah, of course everybody wants to say, Oh, I may I wanted to make the decision because I wanted to change my life and you know, I want to be a better person. No, listen, when I'm 18, 19, you don't, you, you're making a decision, you know, it's self-preservation, man. The change comes as you grow, you know, the change comes as you start to understand that wasn't a part of you, that wasn't your life, but unfortunately you were knee deep in it. But yeah, so that's where the decision takes place, man. And, and uh, when we did it, man, you know, like I said, man, we all went in sporadically. <clears throat> the fortunate thing is you get in front of these prosecutors and these agents, for the most part, they're very respectful. You know, and and they'll tell you, hey, listen, anything you you want to leave out when it comes to your family, you're allowed to do that. So, you know, you don't really have to tell them. Even though, even though my brother was going in, you know, I wasn't going to say nothing about him. Just doesn't, it's not going to feel right. So, my brother was going to clear his own shit up. You know, but yeah. So, you said that um, a lot of the people were very respectful to you and everything about the whole scenario. Um, was there anybody during this process that was just like, you were the lowest scum of the earth and they just didn't have time for you to, you know, did you ever feel that way from anybody or was it pretty professional with the way it was working? It was professional. Right. But like, so here's a mini story, right? Here's a, here's a mini story on my behalf. So I was actually charged on the indictment with a murder I didn't do. Okay. Okay. Um, murder I knew nothing about, you know, and it just goes to show the people that went to the grand jury on me that got me indicted on these charges, they were so eager and so um, determined to try to help their own selves out that they literally made up a murder on me, literally made up a lie that I did this murder. Craziest thing in the world. And uh, 
And so I, I was charged with this murder. And for the first, even once I started cooperating, for the first, I, I don't know, maybe nine months, man, they were convinced that I did it. Um, obviously, the cooperators they had before us were their main cooperators. They were the ones who um, built the indictment, who who set the foundation. They testified in front of the grand jury. So they were confident. They had to be confident that what those guys were saying was true. Otherwise, their ca whole case would have been destroyed in my eyes. And it probably could have been, right, looking back. But so time went on and they didn't believe me that I didn't do it. So, of course, I know I didn't do it. And they're like, all right, well, you take a lie detector test. So, yeah, I'll take a lie detector test. I know I didn't do this, right? So I ended up going down. To, and this is, this, is, uh, this is after I, you know, I interviewed with them numerous times about, you know, just crimes and just all the kinds of things that I had done. And so, you know, at this point, I got some goodwill with them. You know, it's not like I've, I've held things back and they found out. No, I'm telling you, you know, I got some goodwill and they still didn't believe me. You know, some, I believe some parts of one of the guys believe me, but a couple of them were gung-ho that I did this, right? And I think it's because they were probably, like I said, man, they believe their original witnesses and, and whatever, their confidential informants. So I take this lie detector test. I fail, right? Really? So, yeah. So I failed a lie detector test. And, and, um. I can remember the questions, they were so similar and, and like, you know, they were stupid. They, 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 I, you can understand, you can understand why it's not admissible in court because it's like, it's like, it's the, the, the questions, like if you got one of them, right. Cause they, I think believe they said I failed on one question every time. So if you fail on one question, but you rather get the other two right and you're discussing the murder, I don't understand how you could be also, you know, ultimately determine that you're lying. Right. Like if they say, uh, like, let me give you an example. So the questions say, OK, do you, do you plan to be honest about this murder? OK, that's one of the questions. OK, um, do you plan to tell me everything you know about this murder? OK, that's another question. Did you kill such and such? OK, so let's say I failed one of them. Right. Let's just say I failed. Do I plan to be honest about this? So that means that me saying I didn't kill him and me saying I don't know about it. Those are true. I, like, I don't, it doesn't make sense. How, how does you tell me I failed one. Yeah, I, I had to fail one every time. Anyways, so so that was that was like, uh, that was a gut punch, though, because now I felt like they really didn't believe me. A lot of sleepless nights, man, because you don't know. You know, ultimately, your your life hangs in the balance here. So I'd say about another, I don't know, six months go by. I called one of the agents. I believe I called one of the agents. I forgot. I forgot. I just, I think I called him and he told me, uh, he goes, hey. Don't worry about that that uh that other murder. And I go, what? And this is the guy that's like gung ho on me. Like he believed I did it. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, we got somebody who we got somebody who did it. We got somebody who it's verified they did it. And you kind of want to be, go, hey, can I get in? Uh, right. oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> right, right. And I go, are you serious? He goes, I'm dead serious, man. He goes, uh, he goes, you're off the hook on that. That's it. That was it, right? So I go, I think I went for like a some sort of hearing, probably like a status hearing or something you know, a couple months down the line and, and I go in there. Right. And in the federal building, there's like three cages that you can be in one, two, three. Right. So I'm in, but you can hear the people next to you. It's like, you know, you can't see them, but you can hear them. And so I'm in there. And then a lot of times when you're down there in those three things, you go and you, you see your lawyer in a little private booth, and then you go back to the cage. So that happened. And one of the guys in there, he seen me and I recognized him. I, I mean, like I facially, I, I knew who he, I, I knew of him. I didn't know who he was, but I knew of him. That happens when you're a gang member, like usually. And I knew he wasn't one of mine. Hmm. So uh, he goes, he starts trying to talk to me. You know, he goes, hey, you you King Birdo? And I'm like, yeah, I was. I'm like, what's up? And he goes, uh, he goes, yo, I used to be an MP, man. 
And I go, yeah, you look familiar. So MP is Mexican posse, right? We used okay. to work with these guys all the time. And he goes, he goes, hey, man, I saved your life. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, man, I cleared that thing up for you over there. And I, and I didn't know what he was talking about at first, right? And then he mentions the street. He's like, over there on 14th and Greenfield. So I start thinking. He's like, yeah. He goes, I had to do what I had to do. So basically, he was insinuating to me that he cooperated on that. He basically told the government who really killed that guy, you know, what gun it was, you know, everything, and gave him all the details. And then obviously, it, you know, exonerated me. And he goes, yeah, man, I looked out for you. And so I started thinking about it. I said, man, you looked out for yourself. <laughs> you know, I said, I said, thank you, though. You know, you cleared it up for me. But I knew I didn't do it, though. You know what I'm saying? I knew that there was going to have to be some sort of light shed on that. Now, the the I'm, I'm guessing the reason why it was so nonchalant about me being exonerated, because I had to put on the record and everything, you know, at my plea and my sentencing, everything all, had to be on the record that I was exonerated. But I'm guessing the reason why it was really, really kept you know, under wraps is because ultimately it destroyed two of their main witnesses because now they could never be put on the stand. There's no way they could be put on the stand because you basically made up a murder. I oh mean, yeah. You know? Yeah. So how can those guys be credible at all? That you is know? very true. And, uh, and this, and, and one of the guys, you know, that, that cooperated, one of the guys that made it up, he was actually in for a murder already in the state and he was one of their main witnesses. And uh, he's a dude I mentioned in my story. His name's Rense. He was a good friend of mine always around, always around us. And so he knew about all the crimes. He knew about all the violence and, and he got 45 years, right? So before he gets 45 years, this is a really, really, this is another twisty. I won't get, I won't give you all the details, but I'll give you something real quick. He ultimately committed a murder with somebody next to him. And um, while he's there, he's cooperating. He starts cooperating. This is what started the indictment. He starts, one of the guys that started the indictment, he starts cooperating. While he's cooperating, he starts believing because he hears that there's a possibility the guy that was with him, his bullet actually killed the guy that he's being charged for. Like, yeah, he shot at those guys, but there was two guys shooting. So he's saying, oh, my bullet didn't do it. Well, unfortunately, the witnesses they had for that murder, they don't want to make them wrong. You see how that goes? <laughs> like, they don't want to make their witnesses wrong. If their witnesses tell them something, they got to roll with it. So anyways, he, he, tries to, he tries to double back and say, you know what? I'm going to go to trial on that murder because I didn't do it. I'll still cooperate in the federal case, but I'm going to trial in the state. And he goes to trial and he loses. Oh, and he gets 45 years. So he gets 45 years and then he cooperates in the in the, in the the feds. And I don't know if they ever took any time off. He was in the state prison. But um, yeah, so that just, you know, that just goes to show like he came forward. He tried to give him everything he could. He had a murder. You know, he lied about that murder. I don't even know how him and the, there's this other guy named Payne. He was a, one of the other main uh, guys that started the indictment for us. I don't even know how they cooperated that murder to charge me with it. You know, like how they even, you know, like, where do you just come up with that? I didn't even know the murder happened. That's what's crazy. Yeah. I, I never heard of it. Like, I didn't know the guy. Like, I never, you know, nothing. So imagine me when I get the indictment, I see it. I'm like, oh, they're stabbing in the dark. They got nothing. That's how it goes, man. That's that's uh, that's <laughs> that's just the way of the world, I guess. I bet you that that cop was really upset when you weren't when he found out you weren't the guy that did it. That was, that was a bad you know, day ironically, for him. Ironically, it, it it he ended up being really really good, man. Like he ended up being really really cool with me. He uh, the guy knew me since I was literally like eight nine years old because uh, second district is my mom used to actually be a crossing guard for school right over there. So I, I've known I've seen him around for you know I literally walked him to, re to retirement you know because we had to have 
uh, contact, obviously, once I once I started cooperating. And so I, I was in contact with him until literally he retired. And, and, and all these guys, like, you know, the state district attorney, uh, this dude prosecuted every Latin king that ever came through the state. You know, he was another one, you know, had I remember when he retired, you know, so it's a, it's a it's a crazy thing that, you know, ultimately when you make these decisions, like you're kind of tied to the people that you're talking to, you know, and you stay with them for a while. Unfortunately, that's just the way it goes. I think I think to, to put a bow on all that, to put a bow on all that, Eric, real quick before you ask me something yeah. is, is that, you know, I just want people to understand that there's more that goes into somebody just cooperating than thinking, oh, shit, I got to go home, yeah. you know. Obviously, that's that's a part of the equation. You understand your back's against the wall. You know, people are looking for self-preservation. Of course, you know, I'd be a liar to tell you that's not something that goes through your head. But with that being said, there's more than just that. You start realizing that everything that you did in your life, everything that you built your life on, all these brothers that you supposedly had an allegiance and alliance with, that a lot of them are telling on you. And you would have never gotten caught if somebody else wouldn't have told on you, you know unfortunately that's the way the game goes man you know you reap what you sow yeah there's stand-up guys out there and i applaud you you know unfortunately not everybody is going to go that route man and fortunately for me i didn't i'm glad i'm happy with my life hmm. i i think it's also really important because i don't think we touched on this in this episode talk about just the when you had to make that decision of cooperating how how big of an effect how much you were going to lose in your life because you were choosing to cooperate. You, you understand what I'm saying? Great question. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I'm, I'm almost ashamed that I didn't bring that up <laughs> um, because it's, because it was, it was everything. I mean, it was, I mean, you're, you want to talk about bombshell. I mean, you know, you got to understand I was knee deep in the street, man. I was known as somebody that was all in every day, all day. And when I was in the street, I put the Latin Kings before my family, before everybody. And when I went to prison and I made this decision, um, or when I went to county jail and I made this decision, I lost almost everything because, you know, um, as I mentioned, is is pretty well known. You know, my kid's mom, all her family are Latin Kings. You know, all her family were like some of my closest friends. And obviously I got two kids by her, you know, so when that relationship went away, imagine what happened with my relationship with my kids, you know, so I lost everything, man. You know, I got, I got. Uh, and like I said, man, you know, I got people that I've known throughout my life that aren't in gangs or weren't a part of gangs, but they just frown on cooperate, you know, and, and not understanding the whole the whole reason behind it or the whole circumstances involved with it. Just stereotypically, they don't like cooperators. So you even lose those kind of friends. You know, it's sad when you lose even just your normal friends. Like, <laughs> man, I, you know, yeah, I'm away from the gang. But, you know, so so that I mean, and and I guess that's. You know, for me, I hate, I don't, I don't touch a subject, but I feel like that was God's way of refreshing me and starting me, starting me over. Man. And so, you know, that's the thing, man. I, I, you know, it's unfortunate. I lost my relationship with my kids, you know, uh, throughout my time in prison. I can't say I didn't try. Um, obviously, I'm not a perfect guy. So, you know, a lot of things I did, I, I can understand why I was kind of put on the shelf. But like I said, man, you, you lose a lot, man. You lose everything. Um, and Unfortunately, it's just a matter of what you're willing to do once you have that chance. Yeah, and that's a that's a scary thing. And that's I got to imagine as an 18 year old that would be an God just an impossible. Even though I think you're probably your and maybe you can talk about this a little bit. But do you think your mindset as an 18 year old was a little more beyond the average 18 year old? Because obviously you didn't live a very 
normal 18 year old life. You oh, know what man, I mean? I was an 18, I was an 18 year old genius. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's what everybody thinks, right? Like you think you, you know it all. So you, you've been through it all. You've seen it all. Um, I was, I was intelligent. I was intelligent enough to make the right decision. Mm -hmm. But um, obviously I wasn't intelligent enough to not be in that situation in the first place. So, yeah, I mean, I was a little more advanced. I grew up a lot faster than any, you know, anybody in, 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 in my era, 13, 14, 15 year old Kasinka, I've never heard of. So definitely grew up a lot faster, definitely developed a lot more wisdom streetwise. And then, you know, a gift and a curse for me, to be honest with you, is getting locked up as a juvenile, finishing school. You know, I never finished school when I was in the street. It took me to go to juvenile, you know, to finish school, to read a book, to learn, to understand self-study. And that carried over when I went to, because I was only out for three, you know, three months after I got out, you know, and then I got indicted. So those habits and, and all those things carried along and I was able to grow. But 18 year old still is going to be a hard it's going to be a hard thing to make the right decision at that time in your life, mm. you know, but fortunately I did, man. And good job on you for it. I mean, really. So, um, I'm trying to, yeah, I'm hope I'm ho hopefully, hopefully I can kind of, you know, spread some of that, that juju out to, to people that are kind of lost out there. Man. Yeah. And, and hopefully, you know, they, they listen to the podcast one day, whether to say, man, I hate that dude <laughs> or, or, or to say, man, you know what, you know, he's got a point. Yep. So, I actually want to ask a couple more questions about the prison side of things now. And and right. being that you were in a different, sort of a different kind of prison than what I'm probably used to seeing, when I see the prison, and now my prison experience is basically television, so it's probably a terrible reference, but you always see the very clickiness and you kind of have to like, once you get in there, you have to find your group and cling to them so that you're kind of safe from the other groups and things. Is any of that, did you experience any of that? Was that a real thing? Could you go into prison? So it's, a real, it's a, it's a real thing, right? Um, in federal prison. And um, ultimately it's done. It depends where you're at, but not for me. My situation wasn't like that, but is prison really like that? Yeah. Like you go into prison and especially federal prison, right? So you go into federal prison, let's just say you want a cooperator or, or, or if you, even if you were cooperated, but you're going through regular federal bureau prisons, you're not going through what I went through, right? Um, yeah. Ultimately, when you get to a federal prison, um, the first, the first allegiance is always your gang. So if you're, I mean, if you're, if you got a known gang, right? Like if you're some street gang, 21st and Hopkins, like they're not <laughs> going to know you, right? But, but if you're, if you're a part of organized crime of any kind, they're going to tell you where, where your people are at. Hey, uh, yo, you're a Latin King. Oh, okay. You guys are over there. You know what I'm saying? Um, that's real. So then that's one part. Then the second part is let's say there's no Latin Kings on the compound, which is rare, but let's say there's no Latin Kings on a compound and somewhere in the federal prisons, there's so many federal prisons across the country. Then you would go, a lot of times what you do is you go to your last three digits. So your last three digits of your federal number, they tell, they tell everybody where you're from. So like I'm 089. So that's like Milwaukee, you know, and, and then there's like, I want to say 227 is like Chicago. So it, there's, there's, their last numbers are going to tell you. So if you'd be like, oh, ain't no Kings here. Yo, where's the 089 car? You know, and it's cars is who you're with. Oh, okay. Your people over there. And then that's kind of who you ride with, man. And, and you guys just, you know, you function together, you know, you eat together, you sit together, you know, and unfortunately if something happens to one of you guys, you guys got to move together. That's the point of a car. You know what I mean? And so that's, that's pre predominantly, man, 
um, how it goes in prison. But there's also like a lot of the West Coast, man, to be honest with you, is more race. It's more racially mm. divided. You know, the West Coast is going to be like, OK, you know, not even so much about, you know, if you're OA9 or whatever, like, oh, you're Spanish, like Spanish. Sure. Over there. Yeah. Um, so. So, you know, like me, I'm half Mexican, half white. Right. So I had the privilege of being with both. <laughs> no, but, but where I was at, where I was at, man, like you didn't have that issue, man. You could just hang out wherever you wanted. Um, I was I was fortunate enough. Uh, my first like four years in the federal prison, I was actually with my brother. Um, so, you know, we man, come on, man. We had a ball. You know, it was crazy. And, 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 and I, I got I got separated from the rest of my. So is the reason that you didn't really have to deal with that is ju that just because what you were the what did you call it that you're in you were in in prison oh, i was witsec so witness yeah. security program so was so witness security program is super it's like yeah it's a witness protection program so was witsec just was there just kind of not enough people from different groups to really create that kind of no because it it's like everybody everybody drops their label at the door i mean ultimately you got no stripes you cooperated you see what i'm saying so oh like okay yeah in, yeah, it's not like you're walking in with some sort of, you know, flag on you, right? Like, yeah, I ran into other Latin kings in the units. Ironically, like, you end up being friends with those guys. They cooperate, you cooperate. You end up being friends with them because you guys are like-minded. You know, like, mm -hmm. you went through the same things. You know some of the same people sometimes, even though they're from Chicago. I, I, you know, I met other Latin kings. And you end up, you know, having a vibe with them. So, yeah, you end up, that ends up being who you hang out with. But it's not, it's not anything gang-related. You know what I'm saying? So... Or it's not anything, you know, race related. Uh, naturally, people vibe to their own people. That's just the way of the world. Man. You right. Know, it's like it's not, you know, fortunately where I was at, it wasn't like dictated like that. You know what I'm saying? It was just more of a, yeah, man, you know, you, you meet guys and you hang out. Where, like I said, I was with my brother and I was actually with my half brother. So I had, I had, I was fortunate enough to be with, you know, two family members. And, um, you know, the first two years flew by. Because like I said, man, it ends up being like your house, man. Like you're doing regular, like I got into ham, I got into sports. You know, you, you do all kinds, and then you do the bad stuff too. I got into drinking, and, you know, smoking, and you, you try, you just, you, you try to pass the time the best you can, man. You know, mm. for us, it was all about comedy. Like me and my brother, like all we did was want to laugh. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's what a lot of, that's what a lot of our time was in the first four years. But yeah, so man, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not like that where I was at fortunate. Well, that's good. So, all right. Um, Do you have anything else you want to add on to this or? Are you missing any key components? No, nah, not, nothing in particular. I mean, I probably got, you know, we got we got a few more episodes. You know, I'll be able to, I can bring up some prison stories, but, you know, it's it's nothing in particular. So uh, I think the message overall, man, is just, just to give guys kind of a, to give not just guys, but families and, and people that are really, really naive to, not, not to say they're dumb, but they're just naive to how the federal system works and how the federal government works and and um, and I'd be willing to take questions, man. Like, obviously, it's hard for me to just ramble off everything that would be uh, noteworthy or helpful. But if we got questions or comments, I'd be willing to, to answer that. Um, yeah, I think overall, like I said, man, it's, it's, it's just to bring some awareness and to bring some, you know, some sort of, of uh, I don't want to say normalcy because it's still it's still looking at as you're still ostracized if you cooperate. But just bring some awareness and some some understanding to why people make the decision, man. It's not always a self selfish decision. It's not always you know uh, what people for uh, chips and a coke, you know. So um, just to give some awareness and to let people understand that yeah, probably somebody that you know has cooperated, you know, in their life. <laughs> and I think one of the most important things 
that I myself has learned from you is just how hard of a decision that would be. And not even just looking at it from the allegiance of your gang, but looking at it from your life. I mean, from the sounds of it, you literally gave up pretty much everything to do that. Yeah. I mean, and... Yeah, I started from ground zero. With the exception of, like, my brother... Um, obviously my brother was, he's like the closest person I got to me. You know what I'm saying? Um, I gave up everything and, and ultimately, you know, you, you, you put yourself in danger, you know, when you make a decision like that, you know, I know that I'm, you know, I'm on some hit list somewhere, you know, somebody, you know, a lot of people rather see me dead than alive. I understand that. Um, and you know, ultimately you put people that you know in danger, you know, even though they're not involved. And, and so you're right, man, it's, it's a complex decision and it's not one to be taken lightly for sure, man. But, uh. I think it's I think it's important to to kind of bring some 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 sort of humanity to it, man, because people need to understand that there's a lot of guys who might proclaim to be stand up and they just never got exposed. They just never had their paperwork come out. But I know the truth. I know that once you go through them federal doors, man, nine times out of 10, you're only walking out one way, man. What was the three people that are in federal prison? The ones that told. <laughs> ones that wish the ones they that told. Wish they told. And... And the ones they wish they had somebody to tell on. That's important too. You know, it's not what you tell about, you know what I mean? It's who you tell on and, you know, how important you are to them. Otherwise, you can be a tattletale all you want, but that's not going to get you nowhere. Cool. So. All right. Well, yep, that's the truth, man. All right. Then we will wrap this episode up. Um, do you have a subject in mind for the next episode? Times where you get lucky as a criminal. <laughs> you know? I think that's a good one, actually. You know, it, yeah. And, and, in the game, in the in the game of life, when it comes to being, you know, an organized crime, it's a cat and mouse. It's a Tom and Jerry with the with the cops, and uh, ultimately, you know, a lot of people, everybody gets caught or you die or whatever it is. But sometimes you get away, man, <laughs> and sometimes you get away with crazy luck, and you wonder how the hell did I get away with that? We can touch on some. Of that. Yeah, cool. I actually look forward to that episode. That'll be a really interesting one, and I do think we should come back with an episode just about prison stories because i know that you have a ton of just not really on the subject of anything but just humorous things that happened in prison so i think that would be a really good episode to to crank out so so all right well we thank everybody for tuning in we will be back in a week with another episode uh make sure that if you're not a podcast listener subscribe to the podcast if you're not a youtube listener we also have these available in shorter clips on youtube to check out so check that out as well thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll be back in a week thanks for tuning in to normalized crime stay tuned for the next episode